all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, Cars and Comrades, your favoriteest, onlyest socialist car podcast. Uh, we're coming up a little bit short today. It's just uh, me, Bryant, and Zach. No Connor. So this week we're going to be talking about the Lotus, the flower. We're actually a botany podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't. You guys explained this to me before. Like we're 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 doing specifically the Lotus. What? The Lotus Nine Hundred Seven engine, which came in the S One version of the Lotus Esprit, and also that car a little bit. All right, cool. Yeah, but um, I guess uh, let's do some uh, car updates before we get to that. You know, I'm just gonna say, uh, Zach, uh, you're first. I don't okay. know. Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right with that. Uh, yeah, I'm still on the hunt for uh, a new truck. Uh, found a few that look decent, and of course, they all get sold really quickly. All the shit stays on the market. All the good stuff gets sold. That's just kind of how it goes. Um, if you're in the Denver metro area and you feel like hooking me up with a good deal on a pickup, uh, hit us up. Because, yeah, it's it's tough out here. The used car market is fucking terrible, as anyone who's ever bought a used car, I'm sure, is aware. Not a lot of good options out there, but I'm holding out hope. Uh, hopefully, I find something decent here soon. But, yeah, nothing too great has come up so far. Uh, other than that, I just fixed the brakes on my partner's van. Um and that van came from Vermont, so it was a fucking nightmare to work on. Just <laughs> rust everywhere. I feel so bad for East Coasters, specifically you, Brandon. I'm feeling seen right now. <laughs> uh, dude, I will never complain about working on a car that came from the Midwest or West again. That shit was fucked up. I broke two ratchets and a breaker bar trying to get the brakes apart. And, uh, yeah, I I got it done though. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I had to replace a shock mount on uh, my girlfriend's car, and one bolt was so seized up that I took a Dremel tool with a cutoff wheel and took a pie cut out of the nut, <laughs> and still had to like hit it with a hammer and chisel to break it free. God, yeah. that's miserable. Yeah, this isn't even that old of a vehicle. It's a 2011, and. It spent the last three years out here in Colorado. So it only spent, what, like 10 years on the East Coast, which, you know, relatively not that long. And yeah, it was a fucking nightmare, but got it done. Uh, they have new brakes on their van now, so they will stop squeaking and hopefully stop appropriately. Yeah, I just got that done right before we started recording the podcast. That was a fun little adventure. Uh, as it always is working on cars, had to go to the parts store and buy new tools because I broke all that shit. But, you know, that's uh, that's half the fun, right? 
No. <laughs> Not right. <laughs> Less than a quarter of the fun. Yeah. Unless it's a tool you really want to buy, then it's you know, I did a little bit different story. I did get a 24-inch long half-inch breaker bar, which I've never had before. Um, and that was actually a joy to use. So it was kind of nice to have that in my toolkit now. Because, uh, yeah, that fucker really just snapped them bolts loose. It was great. Yeah, I think that's about it, though. I haven't really been doing much on the Subi. The Ford Rangers still just sitting around being a pile of shit. Uh, I'll work on that when I muster up the gumption to work on it, whenever that is. Weren't you, uh, didn't you get a transmission for it from the junkyard or something? Oh, I went to the junkyard. I don't think I talked about this. I went to the junkyard to look for a transmission. Um, I drove all the way down to Colorado Springs, which is about an hour south of me, because they had like six candidates that would be, you know, I thought would be decent uh, cars to pull a, a trans from. And every single one of them was just a pile of shit. I was really looking for one that was like lower mileage and wrecked. And every single one in the lot was not wrecked. And I think that probably means they are in the lot because of transmission failure. Uh, so didn't end up getting one. Uh, I popped the drain plug on a couple of them and checked the oil in the transmission, the transmission fluid, I should say. And yeah, it was just disgusting. It smelled like fish. It was black. It was, you know, obviously very well worn. And so no new transmission yet. Still on the lookout for that. I might actually end up rebuilding this one, honestly, because I'm just over it. Hmm. Because of a, a, a an incident in my early 30s, I'm a little bit traumatized by the smell of burned ATF. It, it's long, long and short of it is I put oil dry down and then a tarp over a bunch of ATF and oil dry. And after rolling around on top of the tarp for six or seven hours doing a transmission swap by myself, I just ended up covered like like neck down in oil dry and ATF, like burnt to shit ATF. I just like, dude, I I do not do this, but I had to throw away all the clothes I was wearing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's no getting that smell out. If you've never smelled burnt ATF, it's fucking disgusting. It legitimately smells like fish, like dead rotting fish. And that's not even, that doesn't even describe the worst of it, honestly. It's worse than dead rotting fish. It's fucking gross. And it's oil, so like once you're covered in it and it smells like rotting fish, it you, you just smell that way for days. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks into your skin almost. And just, ugh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's rough. I hate it. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, about the closest I've come to that is I spilled manual transmission fluid, so gear oil in the back of my... Sabaru when I was moving a Toyota transmission and uh, that stuck around for a good long while before I, I cleaned out most of it from the, you know, like it dripped down into the spare tire well or whatnot. Um, but even like now on a, if it's a hot day, I can still smell it in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the, the cherry on top for my day was uh, after getting the new transmission and everything in and, and the, the van was running and driving again. I was carrying the old transmission to put it away and forgot that like with no dipstick in the transmission, there's just a a big old hole for fluid to pour out of. And I poured 
a bit of the remaining <laughs> oil in the transmission just down my shirt and pants. <laughs> Hopefully it was the same shirt and pants that was already covered. And oh, yeah, this was, this was all in a, a, a <laughs> one afternoon stretch. Okay. I was going to say, if you changed shirt and pants and then dumped it on a fresh <laughs> set of shirt and pants, that would be fucking miserable. Well, I was just using more ATF to wash off the oil dry. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's me uh, for updates. Uh, Bryant, what do you got? Well, I uh, I think when we last left off, my um, Sabaru was having power steering issues. And so I finally had some time to tackle that on a, I think it was last weekend. So I got the, uh, the new gaskets for the, uh, you know, the pressure side and the return side. Um, cause I was thinking that's what's leaking and, um, changed those, put everything back together, you know, um, filled up the reservoir, um, with ATF, which is what it uses, um, for power steering. And, um, you know, cranked it, turned it on, try, you know, tried to steer it. And it's like, oh, there's zero power steering now, mm. you know, before there was some, now there's zero. And I was like panicking. And then I'm like, wait a second. It probably just didn't prime the pump properly. So I took, uh, took the return side off and, you know, there's no fluid in the pump on that side. So like, you know, normally there's a little bit coming up to where the hose goes in, but it was just empty. So I just, you know, poured in some by hand and then put that back on. And uh, that did it. Um, it did oh, cool. spill ATF all over the engine bay, the garage, um, <laughs> a little bit on myself. Um, at least it was fresh ATF, so it didn't stink. Even that but, doesn't uh, smoke great, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did. Uh, it did smoke on on my way to work the next day. So um, just there was a big old cloud of white smoke coming out from my engine bay as I was driving. <laughs> and then I parked it and there's like just a little there's like a new pope under my under my hood there. <laughs> We're going to have some really similar stories this week, actually. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the good news is, uh, the power steering works great now. It's, it's a luxury car. It's, you know, nice and <laughs> like two fingers to, to move the steering wheel. So Zach, you, you drove it a little bit when it, it was acting up and, uh, it took a little bit of effort. Oh yeah. Um, more than usual at least. And was making some weird sounds. Yeah. It was just a little tight. It, it felt yeah. like it had, you know, just a real nice, tight, responsive steering rack. That's all. But it was like responsive in like fits and bursts. Yeah. You know, as the little bubbles work their way through the system. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, next up on, on the list of things to do. Oh, I also changed the rear differential fluid and spilled plenty of that on the on the garage floor, too. But, yeah, it was kind of like gray colored, so it, it needed to be changed. But next up is the um, transmission fluid, the uh, manual transmission fluid. I, I just went to the Subaru dealership and got the fluid that they recommend. I don't know if it's synthetic or what is special about it, but people say that like if you run uh, different kinds of like, uh, especially what is it? Redline fluid will screw mm -hmm. up the front differential. 
Um, there is there is a like a special cocktail of fluids that yeah. is recommended for that uh, transmission. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but there's some special blend that apparently works really well. That's um, you know you you fill up like four quarts or whatever of the standard fluid, and then you put a quart of something else, and then I think you fill the rest with red line. Yeah. I, I'd have to look it up. But yeah, there is some sort of special cocktail that you're supposed to run in those from what I've read. Yeah, I think the Redline stuff is to help with the synchros or something. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess the front differential has, um, I think they call it like hypoid gears, which I think is just the ring and pinion gears. And that can get screwed up by um, running the Redline stuff, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. Um, well, for what it's worth, uh, I know from experience, you really don't need synchros in your transmission. It'll run. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, uh, you know, knock on wood, the uh, synchros in my transmission are doing okay for 200,000 miles. I mean, it shifts okay. It, it's a little sluggish when it's cold, but, you know, it works. At no point in the entire time I've owned my Ford van has have the synchros been intact. Oh, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, and, and I guess I really should, uh, work on my MR2 one of these days, but I've been busy going to protests and editing podcasts and just, you know, other stuff. So that's on the back burner right now. Yeah. Oh, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to set up a, like a TV computer entertainment system in my living room and dealing with, uh, all kinds of, um, obsolete electronics so we we might have to do a, a show one of these days we've been talking about it doing a show about uh planned obsolescence um you know in the car world and in other consumer products but yeah just been cursing that whole concept this week also but um but yeah that's that's about what i've been up to um brandon what have you been up to i don't know like either a lot or a little uh, um yeah I kind of, I'm really leaning hard into that whole, I can ride my bike to work thing. My Cutlass and Ford are both down right now. I do not have a single running vehicle, nor have I, well, okay, I shouldn't say that. My Cutlass is not necessarily drivable, but it it fires up easy and runs. Um, I just, yeah, I just, when there's no pressure to fix them, I just sort of have taken my time. The Cutlass had what I believed to be an oil leak from the rocker cover that was like, so bad that it was just dumping oil onto my exhaust manifolds. So yeah, like just huge plume of smoke. Every time I stopped driving, I replaced the gasket twice. I like the first time I, I put the gasket on and nothing. I put the gasket back on with a fuck ton of RTV. Still it persisted. And, uh, it took probably too long for me to be like, wait, is this oil? Because I mean, it was, because of where it was, it didn't occur to me that when you're driving, fluids from any part of the engine bay can be blown onto other parts of the engine bay. And I probably should have picked up on that, you know, when I would open the hood and the bottom of the hood is just like soaked in oil or whatever. Anyway, it took me opening up the hood after a drive and seeing the high pressure line on my steering, uh, like dripping about a drop every one to two seconds. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I have noticed that I have to put about a quart of power steering fluid in this thing a week. Um, <laughs> That's pretty dead giveaway. Yeah, well, I mean, like, it is. And I, I, I did try to make sense of it one time, but it wasn't until my friend pointed out, like, yeah, air comes up from below the engine and blows fluid everywhere when it drips like that. And I'm like, yeah, that tracks. So um, next has been the interesting... Uh, process of finding a power steering line that will fit on my car because apparently GM only made like two different styles of power steering line for like the bulk of the 60s and I can't find part numbers for one of them <laughs> I don't know I just I, I, I got presumptuous and ordered one for a, a Chevelle because they were nearly identical cars and it would it would it comes close to, to fitting like it would it would be fine except that like it had two male fittings and the mine has a male and a female fitting. And I'm sure I could like run an adapter or whatever, but I finally found the right one and it should weirdly, like I'm, I'm not used like shy of making your own and getting like one of those little kits with like the stainless braided line and all that stuff. That's really expensive. The only place that I could just find one where you look up your car by make model in here. And it says buy this was rock auto. Hmm, and okay. I tried going to rock auto getting part numbers and cross-referencing them still couldn't find shit, man. It's actually how I ended up with one of the wrong ones. So I just ordered it from rock auto. Fuck it. But honestly, I was driving it for a few days after I realized, after I realized it was power steering fluid, I got nervous because power steering fluid is a lot more flammable than oil. Uh, so I just stopped filling it up and just started driving it with no power steering. <laughs> and I, I gotta say it's, it's like way too easy. Um, it's the, Power steering with no fluid is still easier to steer than the manual steering in my van. Huh. Is but, that gonna damage is that gonna damage the pump running it without fluid in it? I was wondering about that. <laughs> okay. I've driven so, it probably six miles in this condition, so um wow. not overly That's concerned about fine. it. That's probably fine. Oh but god, there was there was one day and just this long series of events, uh not even that long, just stupid. And I ended up melting my, uh, the plastic housing that connects to your dimmer switch because like I accidentally broke it, but I was drunk and I had to get home, um, home being like half a mile away. So, and I wasn't that drunk. So I'm just like, no, this is fine. I get a scrap piece of wire, like cut the ends off and just jam it into the two terminals to like act like a jumper wire. <laughs> but I guess yeah. it wasn't wedged in good enough because it like, I don't know, Seems to create a lot of resistance because it was more just a black blob uh, when I got home. No. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just just real. So, I mean, like uh, no power steering, like, yeah, probably not great, but whatever. Drivable. Uh, no lights. Hey, dude, it gets dark here at like five o'clock in the afternoon now. So, yeah, I just but I replaced I replaced the switch. Fortunately, didn't even have to do any uh, wiring fuckery i just unpinned all of the uh wires from the old switch and pinned them into a new one and it is fine now i still have to actually find the replacement dimmer switch because the whole thing started because i like got into the car wrong and, and rolled the the, the switch because it's a uh, the older ones are, are foot switches i don't know if everybody knows yeah. that and yeah i just crunched it under my foot like honest mistake so now i have to replace the switch too which everybody can look up it's a very easy part to find it costs about six dollars and uh nobody in my town has one in stock so mm. 
just uh, that's frustrating. The Ford's down because um, my carburetor is doing the same thing that the previous carburetor did before it caught fire, which you know is is me being melodramatic because what it was doing is not what caused it, caused the fire. Uh, me being an idiot is what caused that fire. <laughs> but uh, I I decided that instead of rebuilding the new carburetor, I'm rebuilding the old carburetor that was on fire. Because that was the carburetor that I got way better gas mileage out of. <laughs> uh, so I just haven't really been too motivated to do that. I might sit down and, and work on that a little bit this evening. But most, it seems like most of the difficulty of rebuilding it is going to be cleaning all the soot and like debris out of it. Yeah, things aren't exactly. Because it's been sitting on my porch for a year. Things aren't exactly in the best shape after they've been on fire. They, that tends to damage stuff. Yeah, but most of the components that you would reasonably expect to get damaged and that's are like plastic stuff that comes in the rebuild kit and gaskets and whatnot. Yeah, mm. fair. Uh, I'm, I'm going to check to see if, if any of the bodies are warped at all, but I mean, I yeah. can run a fly cutter over anything that's accessible in a mill and clean it up or just file it, hone it, whatever. Like, there's, I have the resources to sort of make it work. And, and I've having gone through it a little bit now, it like doesn't everything that got damaged in that fire was rubber. I don't, I don't think a, a burning the way it did was put enough heat into any of metal components to warp them significantly, mm. you know, cause what felt like a lifetime was probably like a 30 or 40 second long fire. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's fine. And if it's not, I'll rebuild the other one or built by a new carburetor or something. I don't know, but Oh, whatever. I have, I have the luxury of, of taking my time, so I'm just going to keep doing whatever I'm doing. Nice. Yeah. And I have what I believe should be the correct uh, uh, power steering line for the Cutlass coming in on Tuesday. And uh, this, the, the real shocking, I, I, I should have known that I had ordered the wrong one because the old one came off so easily. I'm like, no, this is this level of easy does not happen <laughs> in, in a 50-year-old car. I thought it was going to be a nightmare because the bracket was in the way, but the, the power steering bracket like or the pump uh, brackets to mount to the, the block are like super e easy to take on and off. So I like had everything apart in a couple of minutes, go to fight the line. And it's just, you know, it's got enough pressure where, you know, it's on there good, but it wasn't like fighting me. It w I guess, you know, all that oil leaking out really kept it to, <laughs> from seizing up and all. Uh, yeah. That's just lubrication. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe next time I'm on, I'll have working vehicles. But right now, I'm I'm bicycle guy. Sweet, yeah. Which I I, I liked that a lot more until I started waking up and it was thirty degrees outside. Yeah, I uh, I've been trying to ride my bike for exercise, and it's it's hard when it's cold out. So I need yeah. to uh, I need to do it during the day instead of at night, like I was doing during the summer, but. Switching the schedule around is tough on that. Maybe I'll do that uh, when we're done here. We'll see. Well, uh, should we take a quick break before we move on to the main topic? Um, sure. Yeah, okay. sounds good to me. All right, we're back. And Zach, you wanted to talk about the... Lotus engine, what's it called again? The Lotus 907. Okay. And um, 
you just thought that this was a an interesting uh, engine to talk about. What? Tell us again the story of of how you uh, learned about it. Uh, yeah. So, preface. I'll preface this by saying I was pretty stoned when I thought this was interesting. So, just you know. Uh, yeah. Meter your your excitement a little bit because. Or, or be- the listener should just get stoned before they listen to this section yes. of the podcast. Actually, we'll take a, a short break here for you to imbibe your marijuanas, and and then it will be as interesting as I thought it was when I first heard about it. But I uh, I came across this engine initially playing the game Car Mechanic Simulator because that's a very fun game and you should play it. And I just, uh, I was working on the car in the game and I kept coming across things that were just very strange about this motor and the car that it came in, uh, the Lotus Esprit S1. And I thought it was uh, really, really cool. So I, I wanted to do an episode on it. All right. We don't need a better reason than that. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll get into it. Um, so the Lotus 907 is an inline-four automobile engine designed and manufactured by Lotus Cars, displacing 1,973 cubic centimeters, or 120.4 cubic inches, with uh, an all-alloy block and uh, dual overhead camshafts. It uh, features 16 valves. Uh well, the next line in here is, is about the power, but I'm going to wait on that because uh, it, is, it is a surprising amount of power, I'll say. Uh, it had dual side draft Del Orto carburetors, uh, which is not a carburetor brand that I have ever heard of. Uh, brand uh, yeah, I, the... I fuck with Del Orto's. Okay, I, I was going to say. I've seen, the on, uh, I've seen them on like Italian mopeds and stuff, too. Um. <laughs> The, the, there's there's some cool really like uh, like two throat dollar toe carbs that people would uh, retrofit to Harleys back in the day for as okay. like a performance upgrade. Okay. So those came in most markets, uh, and Zenith Stromberg carburetors came in the U.S. cars. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Pretty I'm, I'm well versed in carburetors. <laughs> yeah, I figured. I figured if uh, if anyone would I'm, know, then you would. I still come across oddball ones I've never heard of uh, sometimes here and there, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still the dinosaur of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Didn't Stromberg make those um, downdraft carburetors that were on like 32 Fords that they use on a lot of uh, hot rods and stuff? Yeah. Like a triple Stromberg. Like I, I think there were single barrel carburetors, but like a, the triple setup was a common hot rod thing back in the day. Right. Okay. Yeah, and they they look pretty cool if you put a little scoop on them and whatnot. Yeah, and uh, uh, Zenith just makes a lot of carbs. I want I want to say that they make I, like I don't want to just throw random names out there, but I want to say that there's at least a couple of other styles of carburetors that I've I've messed with on motorcycles specifically that were manufactured by Zenith. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So another interesting. Uh, aspect of this engine, at least in its uh, use in the Lotus Esprit, was that it's a slant four engine. So if you don't know what that means, it's essentially like one half of a V8. It's 
ran at a, a little bit of a tilt. Uh, so it's not exactly vertical. Uh, I didn't really know that this was a thing anyone did besides the slant six that Dodge used for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one thing that kind of threw me for a loop, uh, was the slant four configuration. You know, uh, Saab also did this in like the 900. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. Uh, apparently it was originally used in a Vauxhall in 1967. But Lotus uh, very quickly adopted the the Slant 4 907 for their Esprit application. So onto the car that it was in. Uh, the Lotus Esprit is a rear mid-engine, rear-wheel drive sports car built by Lotus Cars at their Hethel England factory from 1976 to 2004. Together with the Lotus Elise slash Exige, it is one of Lotus's most long-lived models. The Esprit was among the first of the near straight-lined, hard-edge crease and sometimes wedge-shaped polygonal folded paper designs of the prolific and highly successful Italian industrial and automotive designer Giorgio Guigiaro? Guigiaro. I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> I can tell by the way that you're saying it wrong that <laughs> this person has the same last name as one of my coworkers, and I have yet to ask her how it is said. I think Damn it's it. uh, I think it's Gijaro, but I'm not We're sure. We're going to go with that. Gijaro. Uh, the Esprit's well, backbone. comes up, I'm going to impress her. There you go. <laughs> The Esprit's backbone chassis was later adapted to carry the body of the DeLorean car, another low-bodied, Gijaro-drawn, sharp-creased, wedge-shaped sports car design. Uh, in 1978, the first updates led to the Series 2 and 2.2-liter engine Esprit S2.2, made until the 1982-88 Series 3 and Turbo Esprit models. Um, but we're not so talking on about the, this. On the backbone chassis real quick, I just want to say that's like basically they have a separate body and frame, but they're kind of both structural from what I understand. And the frame is basically just what connects the, the front and the rear um, subframes together. It's kind of like the, a more robust version of the Mazda power plant frame. That's like in the Miata or RX seven. Um, okay. That's my understanding of how it works, but um, yeah, but sorry, go ahead. No, no worries. So the Esprit was launched in October 1975 at the Paris Motor Show and entered production in June 1976, replacing the Europa in the Lotus model lineup. These first cars became known as Series 1 or S1 Esprits. The wedge-shaped fiberglass body was mounted on a steel backbone chassis, like we just mentioned. Power was from the Lotus 907 four-cylinder engine. The engine was mounted longitudinally behind the passengers and drove the rear wheels through a Citroen C35 five-speed manual transaxle, transaxle, also used in the SM and Maserati Merrick. Rear brakes were mounted oh, okay. inboard following contemporary racing practice. The Series 1 embodied Lotus performance through lightweight mantra, weighing less than 1,000 kilograms. Uh Real quick, the uh, Citroen SM was what uh, Burt Reynolds uh, drove drunk in the longest yard in the opening <laughs> right. scenes of that. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. 
Uh, I need to rewatch that. (laughs) (laughs) Front suspension consisted of upper A-arms and lower lateral links triangulated by the anti-roll bar. Rear suspension consisted of tapering box section trailing arms and lower lateral links. The half shafts had no provision for plunge and handled some of the lateral forces. There were coil overshock absorbers and disc brakes at all four corners. Steering was by an unassisted rack and pinion. So this thing had no power steering, but four corner disc brakes and coilovers in 1970. What was this? 76. Interesting. I'm I'm just going to say if you're really trying to shave every like pound that you can off of the car, the engine is behind you and the total car weight is that low. Power steering doesn't really sound like a big necessity. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, my MR2 doesn't have power steering and you hardly miss it unless you're parallel parking. Dude, even, even in my van, which is a nightmare to drive, it's that's the only time that you're really like suffering through having manual steering. Yeah. Uh, real quick, Zach, I'm just scrolling through the Wikipedia page on this. And, uh, one of the designers for the, uh, Esprit was, uh, Oliver Winterbottom. I just think that's a cool name. <laughs> Oliver Winterbottom. Yeah. Very British sounding name. So the S1 Esprit was distinguished from later Esprits by its snow shovel style front air dam, Fiat X1 slash nine source taillights, absence of body side ducting and wolf race alloy wheels. Inside the car, the S1 Esprit had a one-piece instrument cluster with green face Veglia gauges. The S1 is rare in the present day, mostly due to drivetrain problems. So, just as an overview of what this car was, it's a very angular, wedge-shaped design Lotus from the early 70s, or mid-70s, I should say, with a slant four design, dual overhead cams, still carbureted, had a five-speed manual transmission, rear engine, rear wheel drive, and drumroll please, made 144 horsepower. So definitely the start of Lotus's design philosophy of lightweight, simple cars that don't make a ton of power, but are regarded as having very good handling, especially for the era. It was said to have the best handling of any Lotus Esprit, the S1. Yeah, I mean, that's a much better uh, power to weight ratio than my MR2. It <laughs> It's heavier and has less power. Yeah. it's It's been since I've been on the show with you guys when I really started like listening less to just raw horsepower numbers and more into stuff like that. Like, like how I always wanted just crazy power in my drag van. And I would compare it to vehicles that I never considered weighed like 1,500 to 2,000 pounds more than my van does. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think we mentioned this, but uh, the the um, motto of Lotus is uh, simplify and add lightness, which I don't know about the grammar of that, but it, it basically just means, you know, like <laughs> make it uh, make it lighter and it'll go faster. Yeah. The Lotus 907, the engine in this car, was nicknamed the torqueless wonder for its lack of bottom end, but good high end horsepower. So definitely not uh, a beastly engine by any means, but pretty interesting, especially for the era 
16 valve dual overhead cam carbureted slant four engine just struck me as a really weird setup that like i i don't know if that was more common in the era but definitely strange i would say especially having dual overhead cams uh that strikes me as something a little more modern to see to see that with a carbureted engine was just a little quirky to me i i've um there used to be some stuff i followed online where they would just repost like weird engines from the past and it wasn't uh like not production engines like hey look at this triumph motorcycle engine that someone did something absolutely bonkers to and uh one of the things that got me following them was their reposting of several motorcycles from the I want to say the engines were probably 30 or 40s, but the work done to them was probably 50s. But I remember seeing like some British motorcycle that had been converted. And actually, they had a, a series of photos to show its lifespan. But uh, it, it started out as, as, I think, a single or maybe like V-twin that ended up dual overhead, like chain-driven dual overhead cam by the end of its life. Yeah. Interesting. And I mean, like, that's that's 50s, like people understood to a degree, like the benefits of, of those design elements. Yeah. It's just adding weight yeah. and, you know, the designing around it and everything else. Yeah. I, I want to say, uh, Alfa Romeo or some Italian, uh, company was doing, um, twin, uh, dual overhead cam, like race engines in like the 1920s or thirties. And then like, uh, what's it? Um, Oh shoot. What was the, the, company that made those um racing engines for like indianapolis um there were big like twin cam four cylinders that were like three liters or something uh oh, i don't know shit uh, I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll get back to you on that but yeah they those those were like competitive race engines from like the 50s through the 80s or something i want to say depending on what racing series you were in Interesting. Yeah. Uh, another weird feature of this engine is that it's like a split head design, I guess you could say. So it has two valve covers and then the spark plugs actually come in through the center. And that's where, you know, the, the uh, spark wires come in. Uh, it's, it, this motor just looks so bulky. Like this isn't a complaint or praise or anything else. It's just like to look at this engine because of, of the specific like split valve cover design that you're talking about. It just looks so like big in this photo. Yeah. To, th- yeah, and well, to think it's like not even a two liter motor. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very quirky little engine. Um, but I think that's kind of Lotus's thing, uh, especially of the era. Now they just use Toyota Corolla engines. Um, right. But of the time, they were using some real weird little engines in these cars. So what you're telling me is that the modern Lotus is actually highly reliable. Yeah, very reliable. It's got a Toyota Corolla engine. How can it not be? <laughs> I mean, I have heard uh, people say that it's, uh, you know, a, a good car, like compared to, let's say, uh, um, Porsche 911. It's in the similar price range and similar performance and possibly more reliable than a German uh, flat six. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not a hard, uh, yeah, (laughs) hard one to be. 
But the uh, the engine I was thinking of is uh, Offenhauser. Um, Offenhauser. And they made uh, engines all the way from 2.5 liters to 3.6 uh, four cylinders. And um, might have to, or I think they even got up to like four liters. But anyways. I uh, know about them as a performance company. I didn't know that they did full engines back then. Oh, yeah. Uh, we might have to do an episode on that that engine later, too, because it's, it's a weird one. Um, just very interesting uh, engineering, because those were like, I think designed in the 30s and then, like I said, built up until the 70s or 80s, I think. Um, but yeah, I'll have to do some more research on that. Yeah. I, uh, I was just going to say, like, the... Lotus uh, Elise, which has the uh, Toyota Corolla engine in it, is significantly cheaper than a 911, I would say. I mean, oh, depending okay. on what, what one you're looking at. But I, I just found one locally that's got a supercharger on it for 55 grand. Which, you Damn. know, a, a used Elise or a used uh, 911 is probably a lot more expensive than that, I would assume. For a similar era, yeah. Wasn't Alex telling us the other day, like that, uh, on, on like on maybe the previous episode, that that Porsches tend to actually hold their value more than you would think, or something like that? Or was he talking about a specific model? Did that make that up I, completely? I have heard that, especially like with the older um, air cooled Porsche 911s. Those yeah are pretty valuable. But there's like the sort of in between generation when they first went to water cooled engines that are not very uh valuable they're um they're the ones with the headlights that look kind of like a fried egg um uh, yeah. and uh apparently like the the go-to is to like swap a chevy ls motor in those um because <laughs> the the you know you can either spend like 20 to thirty thousand dollars replacing the 911 engine and have a mediocre car or you can have like 600 horsepower for like, you know, 10,000 bucks or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if that. And I mean, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but an aluminum block LS does not weigh that much. So you're really not yeah. throwing off the power to weight ratio that significantly if you were to swap yeah. one in. But that um, Tony Angelo guy uh, is doing that on his YouTube channel, swapping an LS into an old 911 that he got for cheap. Oh, yeah. wow. I mean, he also built a Plymouth Cuda to drift race. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I respect the effort. Cool. I just, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what he's hoping to achieve in the long run. He's fun. Though. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, like, if if some of these builds are just for the for the clicks or if they're actually good cars, you know. But uh, it's interesting, at least, to watch. Yeah, I was going to say, I would definitely click on a Hemi Cuda drift build that sounds pretty interesting i think he was i think he was uh 2jz swapped some american car too didn't he or i might be mixing him up with one of the other motor trend guys but yeah i don't remember that one but maybe he might have been involved in the swapping of someone else's but i I think maybe he helped put a 2jz into like some old muscle car and you know everybody was super mad about it until it made like however many thousands of horsepower it made (laughs) right yeah I would love to see somebody do the Tokyo Drift build where they put a 2JZ into a first-gen Mustang Fastback. But 
I don't know if anyone's done that. Maybe that was what they did. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the the build series, but I think that would be pretty sick. I feel like maybe it was a 69 Charger that they put a 2JZ in. Oh, nice. Um, That'll make some people mad. Oh, God. Yeah, I've seen a a 2JZ in a Chevelle. 2JZ engine? No shit. (laughs) (laughs) I just remembered I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, I'm all about oddball swaps, man. Just have fun with it. It's your car. Do what you want. Yeah. There's someone uh, with a, I think a Ford Model A with a 1J uh, that's pretty sick. Oh my God, the power to rate, weight ratio on that thing must be f- fucking wild. Yeah, it honestly looks a little sketchy. I mean, any Model A hot rod is going to be sketchy, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's kind of for the best, it's, it's just best case scenario. Those hot rods have like 300 horsepower, like for a reason. Yeah, yeah. well, this was the naturally aspirated. I, at least it didn't have a turbo when I saw it. Um, so, you know, you're only like 200 horsepower. So I think you're going to be okay. The, uh, the 455 volts that I have to go into my cut list when I get around to it is from a model a hot rod. And the guy was like, it was just too much motor for that car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's a, what's the power on a 455 volts? Um, it sort of doesn't matter when you're talking about like a Model A hot rod, not, not because oh, yeah. like any amount is enough, but because the 455, you're probably not reasonably going to see more than 400 horsepower out of without some pretty extensive modifications, but it doesn't take a world of effort to get four or five, even 600 pound feet of torque out of it. It's, it's a tractor motor, man. Like, like you can build yeah. them to go fast, but like any build of it at all has three to 400 pound feet of torque and fairly low. So, you know, you, you barely blip the throttle on a model a and, and you have just set the tires on fire. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> Oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. He literally was just swapping it out for like a, I think a three fifty Chevy. Cause he was like, that's, that's plenty for that little thing. Oh yeah. yeah. Which, uh, I mean, I'm all for swaps, but I'm really sick of seeing hot rods with three fifty Chevys in them to be completely honest. It's, so overdone in my opinion i really um like one of my bucket list cars will be to build a, a hot rod with a nail head in it oh that would be fucking sick those are sick yeah i think we talked about that on a pre like one of the earlier episodes yeah we've we've discussed because it was is it, i think a, a, the same platform or nearly identical as like what like land cruisers and like m- many other like later model uh cars continue using uh, like a similar engine land cruisers had a version of the buick uh 215 the aluminum oh engine. okay i mix that up then yeah there was there was like one of the earlier smaller nail heads that was like a 260 something or something like that like it was a relatively small motor i think but i, I like I, w- I remember being at a car show and somebody had what looked identical to a nail head and i'm like holy shit do you have like a nail head in this random european car and he was like, oh, good eye, but no. <laughs> and he explained to me, like, I guess that the engine family lived on in, like, weird iterations outside of American cars. Hmm, okay. Am I mistaken, or is the nailhead a Harley motor? No, it's uh, early uh, Buick motor, I think. Or not okay. even that early, like, 
fifties into the sixties. Like some of the early like a body uh, muscle cars from Buick had nail heads in them. But by like the end okay. of the, their life, I think that the the nail heads largest displacement was like four twenty five. Okay, I, they were another oddball motor for not making a ton of horsepower, but just absolute like tons of torque. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. I was thinking like you know iron head pan head. You know, like the the Harley motors. I thought that was a, a Harley motor that I no, was no, familiar um, with. Nailheads got their name because uh, their valves, like they ran really small valves, but the cams had kind of a lot of lift for the day, like something around a half inch lift. Uh, so they said that the the valves look like nails going into the head. Okay, so, you know, yeah. small head, long lift. Yeah, and they're uh, what is it like a forty five degree valve angle? So the the actual valves are straight up and down vertical. So it, if if you look at like a, a cross section of the motor, the push rods are weirdly sort of cantilevered. Yeah. Um, it's like the valve covers just sit upright. Like they're kind of like parallel to each other, not opposed. Yeah. Ah, that that okay. wasn't a good description, but it's a very peculiar looking motor. It stands out. So when you see something that even looks kind of similar, it, you know, you, you quickly pick up on, they're, they're like I, I follow a couple of guys who build just nail heads like that is their niche that they have found and it seems like a real finicky motor too man like when it runs good it's fine but if you ever want to get one rebuilt you just sounds like a nightmare yeah because yeah. there's like five uh you know 70 year old dudes that work on these things in the whole world <laughs> they uh they charge a price for it yeah uh, the one guy i follow who seems like a bit of an expert is probably 40 ish early 40s oh, okay but like learned from one of those guys. Yeah. Knows all the ins and outs. And well, now I want to see like a tea bucket with a Harley motor in it because I think that would be fucking cool. I'm I've had so many carburetor problems with my Ford 300. I'm actually thinking about, I, I looked up like flow numbers and stuff. I'm thinking about putting a Harley carb on it, like <laughs> welding up an adapter and seeing what happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Might as well. Um, I forget if we talked about this before, but like some people will run the, um, the nail head motors, uh, reverse, uh, flow. So yeah. they'll get a special cam and run the exhaust out of the V and the intakes through the, the sides of the engine. And okay. I don't think anyone's done this before, but I kind of want to get one of those and run it as a hot V turbo configuration like Mercedes Hell yeah. does. Oh Yeah. I was just so going to say, like, it's like a hot V. <laughs> yeah. So I have like a twin scroll turbo in the, in the V where the um, intake manifold would go normally. Hmm. I don't know. I think that'd be cool. Yeah. Oh that'd yeah. Be that'd sick. be kind of cool. Yeah. It was, uh, I, for I forget the very specific reason that they would did that, but it wasn't just like an oddball cool thing. It had to do with like the better flow characteristics on one side as opposed to the other. So they realized that if they just, you know, fed it from the like ex normal, normally the exhaust side. I mean, like yeah. it, it made, I, I think it was a performance improvement, but not drastic enough to warrant the effort. And it just ended up being something that was an experiment that some people did. And it just, well, it, it wasn't worth it because uh, it was to overcome like weird angles going into the intake. And then what it did was it would solve that problem by having like a very direct, route into the intake uh and then a convoluted exit coming out of the exhaust so you just right. you moved the problem to a different place 
Yeah. Um. So like back to what we were talking about. So like, what was what was the thing that like struck you about the the Lotus motor though? Like just just that it seemed like good engineering for the time, or like was there more to it? Yeah, it just seemed really quirky. I mean, the fact that it was a slant four, which you know you don't see very often. When I first looked at it in the game, I was thinking like, how accurate is this model of of this engine and, and layout? Because I thought it was a V eight at first when I first saw it, and then I realized, oh no, there's only one cylinder head here. This is a this is a four cylinder. It's just in kind of a half of a V eight configuration. And then I started tearing into it, um, and it's got dual overhead cams which I thought was just kind of weird. You know, you don't really see dual overhead cams on a carbureted engine very often. And then the dual side draft carburetors was unique. It was just a bunch of little things together that I thought was really um, unique, I guess. I, I hadn't really seen a setup like that before. And then the fact that it was, you know, a very advanced for the time suspension setup with the coilovers and disc brakes all around and you know rear mid engined and then i looked into the motor and realized it only made 144 horsepower and i was like wow they put a lot of engineering into a car that only makes 144 horsepower that's lotus for you i guess (laughs) honestly by existing post 2000 our idea of what is a lot of horsepower is just gotten bonkers oh yeah. yeah i won't say that like back then 144 was a lot but like it takes me back to like when when we discussed, you know, the the Soviet racing leagues. Like they were building effectively F one cars that were making roughly like a hundred and sixty horsepower. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a two liter four cylinder that makes one hundred forty four horsepower is pretty good up until like I don't know the mid nineties or something like that. You know, like as a performance engine, like supercars in the nineties were making like three hundred horsepower, weren't they? Well, I just mean for a for a, a twin cam four cylinder that's two liters. Like, no, no, I'm, I'm saying like even when you look at the upper echelons of like what things were making power wise in the '90s, it was yeah, it's like in the 300 range or 400. Out of a two liter, yeah, I guess if you're if it was like a high compression race motor with like individual throttle bodies, but no, I, I I'm I'm saying like in general from any car. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Like a, a Lamborghini or a Porsche or Ferrari or whatever is, is still like all the stuff that when you're like a little kid, you have posters up on your wall because they look cool. And then you get older and you're like, that thing made 280 horsepower. It just yeah. weighed <laughs> 1,800 pounds. Right. Well, I'm just thinking of, um, I don't know, like Honda was making more power with their four cylinders around that same time. But like, I think like the Nissan, what's a Nissan two liter four cylinder that from the nineties, like SR or something. Oh, the SR 20. Yeah. Yeah. Like the naturally aspirated version of those made about 140 horsepower. So that was considered good at the time in the, in the mid nineties. Well, I feel a little bit better about my Ford 300 making a 140 horsepower now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily, like the early nineties, but the McLaren F1 did come out in the nineties and it made 618 horsepower, but it's generally considered one of the top of the line supercars of all time. So, but still, I mean, 618 is quite shy of what the supercars of today are making like 12, 1400 horsepower. You know, that's, that's double. 
what was the top of the line of the nineties. Yeah. And, and, and adding horsepower is not linear growth, man. It's, Oh yeah. Every gain just gets harder and harder than the last one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Diminishing returns and all that. Yeah. Oh, and the costs associated. I thought of another slant for engine while we were talking here. Um, International Harvester in the uh, 60s, I believe, they had a, a 304 cubic inch V8 and they, you know, cut one bank off of that and made a 152 four cylinder. Um, called the um, Comanche uh, that they put in scouts and stuff. Oh, I didn't know about. It. I, I I like those old scouts, and I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah. I think most of the scouts I've seen have had the three hundred four or a three fifty swap in them. So that's interesting. So three fifty is more acceptable when it's in an international. No, it's not. <laughs> that's just what I've seen. I every fucking old car has a three fifty Chevy in it, and it. Why wouldn't it? bothers me it bothers me i don't know why it's just so boring at this point i understand why you do it it makes perfect sense it's a simple motor it's easy to make power you know there's parts everywhere it's cheap it to make seems, power yeah it's cheap and it's it just it feels lazy it feels yeah. lazy like if you're gonna do something up and put you know 10 20 grand and paint on this hot rod and you know make chrome everything why just do a Chevy 350? It just feels boring. In that context, I won't argue, but I, I still stand by the Chevy 350 is just like a reliable workhorse if you're driving your car a lot. Yeah, I think it's a great motor. I have nothing against the Chevy 350 or an LS for that matter. But the LS is just the modern 350 and everything has it in there. And yeah, if, it, if you're just trying to build like a workhorse, like say like a drift car or a drag car, or anything like that. Yeah, throw an LS in it. Why not? But like to make a show car, to make something unique and cool, and then just throw the most basic, boring, reliable engine in there. It's just like, <laughs> why do that? Why not make something cool? You're not going to drive this thing 100,000 miles. You're going to drive it to Cars and Coffee once a month or whatever. I don't think you do see as many 350s like in that type of car as you used to, though. I think that a lot of them have, have sort of picked up on the fact that that's boring. Okay, maybe I'm out of the uh, hot rod scene of today, but I remember being a kid and going to car shows, and I'm just like, oh, this is a cool car, Chevy 350. Oh, this is a cool car, Chevy 350. Oh, this is a cool Chevy 350. Just over and over and over again that, you know, really soured me to the Chevy 350 in hot rods. I mean, shit, if you've got a, you know, first-gen Camaro, that's got a Chevy 350 in it because that's what it came with. Fuck yeah, that's awesome. I, I got nothing against that. But so you know, like, why not do a Chevy 454? Do a big block. You know, do something. I'll not argue against that, no. <laughs> do something that's not a Chevy 350. I don't even care if it's Chevy and a Ford Model T. You know, if you got a T bucket and you put a Chevy motor in it, whatever. You know, I'm not opposed to that. It's just the the prolific nature of the Chevy 350 has really made me pissed off when I see them in every fucking hot rod on the road. See what I've always wanted to do is take a Chevy 350 and do the stroker kit to it. So it's a 383 and then uh -huh. put that in a Mopar that should have had a 383 big block from <laughs> yeah. because Mopar <laughs> guys tend to be the worst purists. And I just love the idea of, of someone being like, Oh, it's got the 383 and I pop the hood like, yep. And just <laughs> watch veins start to burst. <laughs> see i can get behind that that's great yeah. 
do that all day long. But if I see another fucking T bucket with a 350 Chevy in it, I'm just gonna lose my shit. I actually tried to do this when I was I was trying to buy a uh, Challenger shell, like a 72 or 73. It was. And I was yeah. like, well, if I buy this, I got no money for a fucking Mopar big block. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I just like uniqueness. I like something that's a little out of the box. Like, fuck, I'm not a purist. Throw a 2J in it. Throw whatever you want in it. But if I see another fucking hot rod with a Chevy 350 in it, I just, oh my God, it's so boring. It's just the lamest swap there is, in my opinion. There's a there's a recipe for building a like it's something like 513 cubic inch Oldsmobile small block, and I've I've always wanted to do that. That's Hell that's yeah. my thing that I would love to do oddball. It requires there's also uh, a 350. Um, no, if you take a 403 small block and then a big block crank with the much much longer throw, and regrind the journals to fit in the small block. And then you regrind a bunch of other stuff to make like rods and pistons more accessible. You get big block Chevy rods in it and then small block Chevy 400 custom made pistons because like you use the slug from a uh, Chevy 400, but like it has to be made specifically to fit in the olds, cobble all that together and then do, I think you have standard like 30 thou overbore and you end up, it's, it's, it's like 513 or 520 something cubic inch small block. Damn. That will crack in half if you rev it past like 4,500 RPMs. I was going to say, oh yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but it'd probably like rip a stump out of the ground at idle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a cool build. I can get yeah. behind that for sure. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even like race guys who like figured out some of that stuff back in like the 80s and 90s were like, yeah, this, this block is just junk. There's nothing you can do with it. Like elaborate main girdles to try and hold the thing together and it would still crack. Hmm. Just uh, cast the whole thing in a giant block of concrete on the outside. (laughs) (laughs) It'll still crack. It just won't matter that much. Yeah. Honda guys do that. I mean, I was going to say, yeah, concrete into the journals, into the um, coolant journals. I saw someone with a, um, a Subaru EJ that was doing the poor man's closed deck where they put a like JB weld on the very top of the, the deck where the, you know, filled in the cooling passages there. Yeah. Uh, apparently that works. I think it was the YouTube channel cold war motors where the guy put uh, JB weld on a cylinder wall. Oh my. How did that work out? Fine. Really? He said uh, his reasoning was that it was at the bottom of the cylinder wall. So it was never really going to be seeing like this. And oh, this was like a 50s Chevy motor. And so he was like, but it was like kind of a beater. Like if, if you know that guy's channel, he basically just takes oddball stuff that is around his yard, like junkyard or whatever. I don't I don't really know the dude's background. I haven't watched him extensively, but like he, he works with what he has to an extreme degree uh, and will make everything else himself. So, yeah, he just. I think he was effectively just trying to make it so that it wouldn't leak like coolant into the oil or something. Yeah. His, his additional reasoning was like, this is not going to be a daily driver. This is a 50 Chevy that I just want running. I am never going to put 500 miles on this car. Okay. Oh, his adi- uh, more reasoning was I've done this before and it turned out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I saw somebody JB weld a uh, a rear diff together, like a welded diff, but they used JB weld, and uh, that turned out pretty well. They were whipping donuts in it, and uh, I mean, it held together. So JB welds kind of impressive. I tried to JB weld my boiler together in my house once. <laughs> How'd that go? Uh, not well, but not for the reasons you think. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, they have a super high temp version, and I was trying to seal a crack so that I could at least work my boiler until I could fix it properly. Uh, and because it's the boiler system for my entire house, getting the entire thing flushed and dry was literally impossible. So I, I couldn't get it to not wash away from the eternal drip of like the water from oh, the radiators okay. upstairs and everything. So it would never dry out enough to let the, cause it, it's a really weird epoxy. It's like metal infused and very like water soluble. So if I could have just slathered it on there, it might've turned out fine because it's rated for like two or 3000 degree temperatures or like, I think 2000. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just wouldn't dry. Kept washing away. I, uh, I know of at least, I think I can think of at least two lemons race teams that, um, you know, on day one threw a rod and then patched up the uh, side of the block with JB Weld and ran the engine on day two. Um, not very well, uh, but they did get it running, you know, at least briefly. Um, this is just turning into an ad for JB Weld. Right. At this point. <laughs> if you like what you hear about JB Weld, please go to jbweld.com slash cars and comrades podcast and order yourself some. Yeah. Just kidding. We, we don't yeah, want to. Yeah, we are not sponsored. We're sponsored. <laughs> um, can I go on a brief tangent about the uh, the um, International Harvester engine? I think we're yeah, 15 sure. minutes into a brief tangent. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Might as well start another one. I might have talked about this on a previous episode, but I kind of want to convert one of those to a uh, steam engine. Okay. And I'm not sure how possible this is, but the if you want to make a uh, four-cylinder um, double-acting, double-expansion steam engine like what was in the Doble cars of the 1930s, um, or maybe 1920s. Anyways, the, the, the Doble engines uh, all had... Uh, anyway, the double engines had had those kind of engines. Um, you want a cross plane crank crankshaft. Um, you want a cross plane crankshaft like what's in a V8. So I was thinking, like a few people have converted like a 350 Chevy to steam by sawing off the the front four cylinders and running the rear four because the angles and everything work out that way. Um, but I was thinking have the, the inline four cylinder out of the international harvester and put the V8 crank in it. So we have the um, crank throws every 90 degrees. And that would work with a double acting steam engine that would make it the, the smoothest, basically. And then you would use the the pistons and cylinders as the, the crosshead. So where like the linear bearing and then you would build you, where the head would go, you would have the steam cylinders on there. Um, so 
I don't know. Uh, I don't like I said. I don't know how possible that would be, or like difficult of an engineering job it would be. But I think that would be kind of cool. And if you do that, are you like required to like dress full steampunk, or is it just encouraged? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. It's uh, a good question. What would what would be like the combination of like steampunk and like off road backcountry kind of attire? Like uh, I think cut that's off still sleeves, steampunk. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's just but steampunk. with but with cut off sleeves and. Uh, um but yeah i I think it would be kind of cool to have like an off-road steam-powered international harvester and like take it to moab or stuff like that i i really want to set the uh like a land speed record with steam power and like the pikes peak hill climb record with steam power stuff like that stuff that hasn't been done for like 100 years can your motto be uh, yesterday's technology tomorrow? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've, I've jokingly said that's my motto before. So, but I feel like if you're doing Pikes Peak with a steam engine, then you've you've earned it more than me. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like I, that's just one of those um, pie in the sky ideas, like um, making a, an Evo powered uh, uh, Jeep Patriot um stuff like that that i'll probably never do someday but it is technically possible i feel like an evo powered patriot is not that hard they're the same chassis right yeah sort yeah. of sort of i mean close enough <laughs> i don't know how close enough they are but in theory it's possible i'll convert a jeep patriot to electric and call it the jeep comrade <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's all the uh, engine nerd business that we have to cover today. Uh, we'll have more for you in the future, maybe about the Offenhauser engine, maybe about something else. But um, uh, for now, um, you know, what, what, what does Connor say? Uh, like, subscribe, ring that bell. Uh, uh, follow <laughs> us on social media, Cars and Comrades everywhere. Cars and Comrades at gmail.com if you have a tip or if you... Uh, disagree with us uh, in a in entertaining way leave reviews that kind of thing i don't know did i miss anything guys i think you were more extensive than usual okay yeah that was pretty good <laughs> pretty thorough cool uh well until then uh have a good one all right take care everyone bye we gonna make you pay five to five bits we make you pay five to water bits we gonna fight riches and not riches but we gonna fight the solidarity we said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight with socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Free market mythology it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation, will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? 
Dude, I almost had you. 